Harlem Renaissance, also called New Negro Renaissance, is probably the most popular literary period of African American literature. It is defined as the era between the end of World War I and the middle of the 1930s Depression, during which time talented African American writers produced a sizable body of literature. The period is characterized by several important features. The first is migration to urban centers. During the Reconstruction period, many African Americans migrated to the cities, particularly big cities such as Cleveland, Chicago, Philadelphia, and Harlem. The literary movement was named Harlem because it became a haven for African Americans, including important writers such as Langston Hughes, Claude McKay, and others, to the point that one such Harlem Renaissance writer, James Weldon Johnson, labeled Harlem the Negro capital of the world, a metaphor for black Mecca. Another characteristic is the regeneration or renaissance of black culture, folk traditions, and character. The prefix re in the word renaissance means back, again, anew, over again, and the suffix nascens is etymologically from the Latin root natus and or nation, which means birth, descent, beginning, dawn, rise. Put together, these connote ideas of not just rebirth of the past, but also establishment of a new movement or body politic. Harlem Renaissance is, therefore, the first collective literary movement of African Americans as honest American Negro literature, as Langston Hughes puts it. In a nutshell, it is a new artistic mode of expression of African American life and culture, which stimulated a new confidence and racial pride. During this time of new literary expression by African Americans that sought to create a distinct literature, different from the traditional mainstream American literature, a new movement was also making headway in mainstream literature. This was the new critical movement, or new criticism and modernism, that also made deliberate attempts to depart from traditional literature. Quite ironically, both the Harlem Renaissance writers and modernist mainstream writers created innovative literature that were decidedly avant-garde and, in a sense, similar. One can, however, use the African-American subject matter of Harlem Renaissance literature to differentiate it from mainstream modernism. Major writers of the Harlem Renaissance may be categorized into three main groups who engaged in lively debates and disagreements between and among themselves. These groups are the old generation, the new generation of young male writers, and the new generation of young female writers. The first group, the old generation, comprised major writers such as Du Bois, James Weldon Johnson, and Alan Locke. This group was prescriptive in their literary approach. However, whereas Du Bois believed in functional, racially uplifting literature for political purposes, Alan Locke advocated the necessity to transcend race. In Locke's anthology, The New Negro, he showcases what the literature of a people who have transcended racial stereotype looks like. The second group, comprised of new, younger-generation male writers such as Langston Hughes, Claude McKay, and County Cullen, disagreed with the older generation and advocated artistic freedom to write about and on any subject, both pleasant and unpleasant. However, they also disagreed among themselves. Hughes advocated for the reappropriation of African-American folk traditions and experience in his essay, The Negro, Writer, and the Bracel Mountain. On the other hand, McKay and Cullen, referred to as the genteel school, aspired toward mainstream traditional literature such as sonnets written in standard English. They were more elitist in their approach as well as their audience. 
The third group of younger new female writers included Zora Neale Hurston and Anne Spencer. These also believed in artistic freedom, but thematized the new black woman, her community, freedom, and concerns. Hurston used what she termed African-American expressions outlined in her essay, Characteristics of Negro Expression, whereas Spencer's writing was more obscure, metaphysical, and difficult to understand. Thus, while Hurston's writing is sprinkled richly with black folk expressions, Spencer's is more elitist, enigmatic, elusive, and allusive. From the foregoing, we may summarize the common themes and characteristics of the Harlem Renaissance as artistic freedom, which is freedom for the artist to create as he or she saw fit, black sensibility and use of black folk traditions such as spirituals, dialect, blues, jazz, gospel, and African-American oral textual features, broader responsibility of the African-American artist to both the community and to a universal audience, to an elite audience as well as ordinary people, alienation, marginality and literature of protest and of difference, the city, black urbanity and urban pluralism, that is representation of a variety of black life and a finding of one another, the peasant, the student, the businessman, the professional artist, poet, musician, adventurer and worker, preacher and criminal and social outcast, black womanhood and quest for freedom for the African-American female, and two-ness, a divided awareness of one's identity introduced by Du Bois. The legacy of the Harlem Renaissance movement is noteworthy. It provided a historical and cultural recognition of African-American literature. It gave the literature a new vitality, main, outlook, and appreciation of folk roots and culture. It created a literary space for African-Americans to write and speak from, and it affirmed the belief in art and literature as agents of change, as art for life's sake. Nevertheless, its demise during the Great Depression revealed the impact of economic realities on literature, as well as the pros and cons of ethnic provincialism and the seeming gulf for separation between African-American literature and mainstream American literature. As you assess the readings for this week, analyze how these debates are reflected in the literature. Also note how the literature acts as counter-discourse to mainstream literature, as it tries to establish a unique space for African-Americans to write and speak from. A brief overview of the debates, as well as the unique styles of the literature, is discussed in the rest of this lecture. Build on it. The debate between the old generation versus the new generation may be epitomized by Du Bois's essay, Criteria of Negro Art, and Hughes's essay, The Negro Artist and the Racial Mountain. Du Bois offers three main responsibilities for the Negro artist. First, he insists the Negro artist should be concerned with beauty that is, beauty in the classical, universal, and trans-historical sense of the word. He argues that because African Americans have been ill-treated in the past, they have a unique vision of what the world could be if it were really a beautiful world. Secondly, he says the purpose of African American literature should be propaganda. He writes, I do not care a damn for any art that is not used for propaganda. He concludes his essay with his third concern. The way African-American literature will be recognized and judged. He advocates a literature that will reveal the humanity and sensibilities of the African-American artists who created it. Hughes disagreed with Du Bois in his essay, The Negro Artist and the Racial Mountain. In it, he advocated artistic freedom. However, there is much more to his essay. He also argued against George Schuyler's The Negro Art Hokum. 
Schuyler argued that there is no such thing as African-American literature because, according to him, the literature is influenced by the mainstream literature. Consequently, there is really only and just one art, American literature. Any talk of African-American literature, he concludes, is hokum or nonsense. Hughes wrote his essay one week after the publication of Schuyler's essay in the same magazine, The Nation. Hughes argued against what he called the racial mountain, which he defined as the urge within the black race toward whiteness, the desire for American standardization, and to be as little Negro and as much American as possible. In contrast, Hughes advocated the need to create African-American art that is distinct, unique, and derived from African-American experience and heritage. Instead of American standardization and homogenization, Hughes thematizes diverse and heterogeneous African-American experiences and presents a range of diverse characters among urban and working-class blacks. He depicts unique African-American experiences, such as the role of art in African-American everyday life and experience, artistic expression as African-American salvation, the fervor of creativity and innovations of the Harlem Renaissance, discrimination, loneliness, and other challenges of urban life, black urban folklore, and orality in writing as exemplified in The Weary Blues and other poems. His poem Young Gal's Blues, for example, uses dialect to establish a young gal's lament. Also note the allusion and reference to blues, then popular African-American music. In The Weary Blues, the persona actually uses lyrics to a blues song to show the importance of blues to then-African-Americans facing challenging situations. Trace the vicissitudes of the speaker's turbulent emotions reflected in lines 20-22, through 27-30, and 31-34. through 34. What change has occurred in lines 31-34? through 34? What brings about that change? How? The speaker feels lonely, alone, dejected, and even wishes for death. Yet when he sings the blues, he is relieved of weariness, pain, and challenges of life. He sleeps like a log, or a man that's dead. The lyrics of blues music have cathartic and positive therapeutic effects. Likewise, the poem I Too turns a negative situation into a positive one by thematizing the speaker's optimism about future race relations in America, despite and in spite of ill-treatment and discrimination. What's the significance of the speaker's self-perception as the darker brother? Examine his prediction that race relations will improve in America. How has this prophecy of 1925 been realized or not realized? As mentioned earlier, other young generation male writers disagreed with Hughes and called on black artists to work within mainstream traditional American literature. County Cullen, for example, believed that art should pull down rather than erect barriers between races. In his review of Langston Hughes's The Weary Blues, he asks Hughes not to be a racial artist and to remove jazz from his poetry. Art, according to County Cullen, transcends race and can be used to minimize the distance between blacks and whites in America. Consequently, he developed an aesthetics that embraced both cultures and he used Keats as his model poet. Do you agree with Cullen? Do you agree with his advice to Hughes? What are possible reasons why he chose white models? Was he seeking favor with white America? Was it because he did not have any African-American poets as models or traditions to draw upon? 
Was it because English poetic tradition was what he'd learnt, internalized, and was presented to him in school as good art? Did he feel challenged to prove that a black poet could excel within traditional mainstream frameworks? Was it because he simply felt free to choose to exercise his First Amendment right? Read as many poems as possible by McKay and Cullen, especially their sonnets. Use a representative sample of their works to discuss and illustrate their style and content. What do their works imply about artistic freedom? About artistic responsibility? About the author's social political duties to their readers? In reference to McKay, James Weldon Johnson said in the preface to the Book of American Negro Poetry that Mr. McKay gives evidence that he has passed beyond the danger which threatens many of the new Negro poets, the danger of allowing the purely polemical phases of the race problem to choke their sense of artistry. What suggests this in McKay's and Cullen's poetry, such as Cullen's Yet Do I Marvel and McKay's If We Must Die? Note their poetic style and language, especially their use of classical forms. McKay's If We Must Die was so mainstream and universal that it was recited by Winston Churchill in a speech against the Nazis, and it became the unofficial motivating piece that rallied the Allied forces in World War II. Quite paradoxically and ironically, both McKay and Cullen were motivated by a strong sense of race consciousness. Cullen says, and I quote, Although I struggle against it, it colors my writing, I fear, in spite of everything I can do. James Walden Johnson affirms this by observing that, strangely, it is because Cullen revolts against racial limitations that the best of his poetry is motivated by race. How are the content and style of poems by McKay and Cullen motivated by race? Interpret their poetry as both racial and universal poetry, as poetry applicable to all people of all time. Which of the two interpretations do you find more convincing? Why? Like the young male writers, the young female Harlem Renaissance writers supported the idea of artistic freedom, but there was one striking difference between their concerns and that of their male counterparts. Unlike the men, they were concerned more with African-American women's rights and independence, but like the men, they also disagreed about the expression of artistic freedom. One group, epitomized by Anne Spencer, was more genteel and elitist, whereas another group, epitomized by Zora Neale Hurston, believed in unique African-American expressions. Anne Spencer wrote about 50 complete poems. They could have been more, but many friends and neighbors visiting her home after her hospitalization eventually assumed the countless pieces of scrap paper on which she had written lines of poetry were useless, and they innocently threw them away. Thus, much of her work written five years before her death was lost. Her poems thematized nature, human relations, personal rights of women, and contempt for racial discrimination. Her settings, moods, and themes reflect her everyday life, especially her garden, which she used metaphorically to comment on life and human relations. Poems such as Before the Feast of Shushan, At the Carnival, The Wife Woman, and Letter to My Sister focus on women and use high modernist conventions and elusive ironic perspectives on race and gender issues to reveal the unique challenges women face. Compare her portrait of Queen Vashti in Before the Feast of Shushan with the same Old Testament figure to explore the rights of women she tries to communicate in the poem. Note her style. Does anything suggest African-American authorship? Like Spencer, Hurston thematizes women's issues, but she uses what she calls characteristics of African-American expressions as outlined in her essay of that title. 
This style is similar to Hughes's. In Their Eyes Were Watching God, for example, Hurston uses dialect, storytelling, absence of privacy, proverbs, and other African-American oral textual features to communicate the initial, triple, marginalization, powerlessness, and eventual freedom and independence of the black female, as epitomized by Janie. She uses the journey motif to show Janie's journey from mule of the world to a fully emancipated woman. Janie's grandmother poignantly depicts the initial plight of the black female in the following admonition to Janie. Honey, the white man is the ruler of everything as far as I've been able to find out. Maybe it's someplace way off in the ocean where the black man is in power, but we don't know nothing but what we see. So the white man throw down the load and tell the black man to pick it up. He pick it up because he have to, but he don't tote it. He hand it to his women folk. The black woman is the mule of the world far as I can see. At the conclusion of the story, Janie is no longer powerless and voiceless. She tells her own story of her journey to freedom, a liberation symbolized by her wearing of overalls. As you read chapter one of the story, note references to and significance of dem overalls. What does it symbolize? And how does it mirror Janie's newly found true love, as well as her newfound identity of the emancipated African-American woman? What are the literary, cultural, and political functions of using characteristics of African-American expression to tell her story? To conclude, the Harlem Renaissance reveals several important things about African-American literature. It shows attempts by African-American artists to create a space to write and speak from, to create something new and avant-garde, and to covet and utilize artistic freedom. As well, it shows that the literature is not just counter-discourse to mainstream literature, but also a site for, and of, intraracial debates and disagreements. <laughs>